0: The final day of January. We have made it through one of the two worst months of the year in Cleveland. Laura, I'm not talking to you. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and the Plain dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Laura Johnston, who loves this time of the year, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. How are you all on this final day of January?
2: Doing very
3: well. How yay, are you? Yay. I'm ready for February. I, <laughs> I did see that we've survived the 10 darkest weeks of the year. Like around the solstice. So, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, I feel like it's definitely lighter longer and I can really feel that, the brightening.
0: And we're not that far away from the great day of the year where we turn the clocks ahead. Mm. Let's get going. Let's take a few minutes to talk about John Adams, who provided a soundtrack for Cleveland in his drumming at Cleveland Guardians games He died Monday. Is there anyone who was more of a Cleveland icon than a guy who night after night after night sat in the bleachers and helped the heart pounding during key game moments? Laura, you start.
3: This was such a simple rhythm, really nothing flashy. John Adams said himself that he could teach a monkey to do it in five minutes and he can like really play the drums. He's a drummer and he can play really complicated things. But this is just the boom, boom, boom on a bass drum. And I can still hear it in my head. Every time I think of a baseball game in Cleveland, even though it's been years since he's been able to play at progressive field, it's instantly recognizable. And he knew that John Adams was up there in the bleachers rooting for the home team. It really was stirring. And it happened for nearly five decades. We're talking about 3,900 home games, the heartbeat of Cleveland baseball. I don't, I don't know that anyone will forget it. I saw lots of people posting on Facebook pictures of that they'd taken with John Adams because he's a Cleveland icon, a celebrity in his own right. And he died Monday at at age 71.
0: And it's so specific to Cleveland. It it is Mm -hmm. unique to Cleveland and any baseball game you went to, it was there. It's just, it's hard to imagine that, that it's not there anymore. Lisa, I don't think you probably experienced it because by the time you came back to Cleveland, this was on the wane. Were you ever there at a at a baseball game when he was pounding his drums?
1: Well, I was. Um, my father managed to wrangle some tickets for the very first year that Jacob Field opened, 1994. And it was like right around Memorial Day. And we were like in the farthest top bleachers. But I remember you we could see down where he was. And even though the Astros, for much of the time I was in Houston, they were in the National League. So we didn't play the Indians, you know, or the Guardians Indians, um, you know, unless it was interleague. But when The World Series was on TV and the games were in Cleveland, like in 96, 97, when they went to the World Series back to back. It was like, wow. I mean, you could hear him. And that was like it was like a drumbeat of home for me because I knew who he was. And it's just not it's just not a game without him, quite frankly
0: somebody posted on social media that there was a, there was always a special moment in the game where their heartbeat would match the pounding of his mm-hmm. drums in a key moment and they were in sync and it was so special and that i think that's the way he kind of came across to everybody you would start to hear it there was in terry pluto's remembrance that's on the front page of the plane dealer today uh it, he talked about how in some of those early years There were no moments for the drum because they didn't start pounding it unless somebody got the second base and they'd be shelling nuts and they would throw the shells on top of the drum. And finally, (laughs) when somebody got on the base and hit the drum, the shells would explode in all directions because they were so bad. Anyway, it's a it's a sad moment when a city loses somebody like that. It just touches everybody. And you could see the outpouring throughout social media and everywhere else. And I mean, it was just true.
3: his idea, right? Like he went, he asked the, the Indians at the time there at Municipal Stadium, can I bring this drum? And they were like, sure, why not? And then a baseball writer from the Cleveland Press interviewed him, said, are you going to be here tomorrow? Wrote up a story, said he was. And, and so John was like, I guess I got to go. And so it was just so organic. It was not a, you know, a ploy or some kind of marketing scheme they came up with. It, it, it's just so Cleveland.
0: He had a cascading series of illnesses, and so Terry did visit with him in sometime in the past year. And his he wrote a story back then, but his remembrance cap uses a lot of that, so it's yeah. worth reading uh, to to see some of those cherished moments. I
2: think my favorite part of Terry's story is when he says, uh, when, "When Adam says that every time he." entered the ballpark it was like dorothy entering oz Mm -hmm, that the place was mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. alive and bright with color and you know in terry's story kind of closes his eyes and says i can still see it now got a little misty eyed when i read that part
0: Mm -hmm. yeah a few people make the world a better place day in day out and he made cleveland a better place like laura said for five decades it's today in ohio why is the leader of the AFL CIO working so hard to stay off the stand in the Larry Householder trial? And what juicy morsel of news came from his court filing, Lisa? Wow, they dropped a bombshell in this
1: motion. Their AFL-CIO president, Tim Burger was subpoenaed uh, uh, back in January 23rd to testify for the defense, so for Householder. And when his lawyers asked, well, what do you want to know? What are you going to ask us? In an email to Householder's attorney, Nicholas Aleski they got no response. So Burger's attorney, Stephen Nolder, filed a motion to quash the subpoena. He also dropped this bombshell. He says, well, the union got a $1.4 million Payment from an account controlled by householder and his conspirators. So, wow. And that was not. You know, previously introduced into evidence. So I guess they're going to have to chew on that. But the AFL-CIO was approached in 2019 to join the campaign against repealing House Bill 6. The union accepted the $1.4 million from Jeffrey Longstreth USA and Generation Now on the condition that they would control the advertising content and uh, touting only the virtues of House Bill 6, so not attacking it, which is what so many people did. Um, they included copies of the ads with their motion. So, uh, yeah, I guess they're, you know, householders, people are going to have to work over that new bit of evidence. But a householder attorney, Mark Marin, says they're not obligated to tell prospective witnesses what they'll be asked on the stand. He says we might have info that they know, uh, but we don't want to divulge it for strategic reasons.
0: The, the frightening thing about this is the union was paid to help defeat a ballot initiative, to repeal HB six and the union said, Hey, we said we would only do it for in positive ways that this is about jobs at the nuclear plants that were getting bailed out. But it just shows the lengths that householder would go to, to thwart the, the voters that, I mean, This was an effort to put this before the voters so they could decide whether they wanted to to give this gift to First Energy. And he was doing everything possible to stop that, the voters from having to say, with all of the spin. Remember the red China postcards? I mean, this was was Mm -hmm. part of that same campaign to convince people that giving this gigantic sum of money to First Energy as a result of bribes, as we now know, was a good thing.
1: I just, yeah, I, I like I said, I think this is a monkey wrench. They've thrown a monkey wrench into the trial here. And Berga's attorney, Nolder, says, well, you know, they shouldn't ask the question if they didn't know the answer.
0: <laughs> no, that's a, always a good line in a trial. Well, the trial, uh, Lord, do we know is the trial going to pick up again today or is it still postponed because of COVID?
3: I have not heard that it's postponed again. So fingers crossed.
0: So it could pick up today. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It had been a while since we took stock of the state of in-office work versus at-home work. What did reporter Sean McDonald find when he surveyed local companies and talked to the experts, Layla?
2: Well, there have been a number of surveys that have given us a good uh, view of of what's happening with this issue. The National Center for the Middle Market at Ohio State University, for example, surveyed 1,000 mid mid-sized companies in the United States in December and found a mix of approaches, to this this issue. Of those companies, 454 said their workforce was primarily in person, only 27 said they were mostly remote and then 519 had embraced this hybrid model data from the Employers Resource Council also shows that local companies are using a mix of in-person, hybrid, and remote work. Hybrid was the most popular of those working arrangements among companies surveyed for that data, with 80% saying that their employees work a hybrid schedule. And Sean included in his story some real-life examples from our local workforce. Medical Mutual, for instance, decided to leave their downtown building and opted to consolidate at, at their Brooklyn headquarters, at least in part because workers had a hybrid schedule. UH is almost finishing converting the UH Management Services Center in Shaker Heights into a hybrid workspace. Many employees, li- like those in HR or finance, can opt for a hybrid schedule. Progressive Insurance put five buildings in their in the eastern suburbs on the market as it consolidates it reopened its offices a year ago and thousands of employees have started using them but they say most of their employees are still working remotely at least part of the time so flexible hybrid or work from home policies became the new normal it seems so companies are realizing that preserving some of that beyond the pandemic is really important for recruiting and keeping top talent. A representative from a recruiting firm told Sean that the first question out of the mouths of new recruits is always whether the job is remote and and the 100% on-site jobs are really the hardest to fill.
0: What was striking to me was the idea in the story that if the economy gets bad, the employers will squeeze everybody to come back. And the idea that With remote work, you're not really saving office space in the end because you want people together on the days you're there. And one person said you even need more space to make it more, I don't know, collegial or something.
2: Yeah, it was interesting that, you know, employers are very sensitive about creating what they refer to as a negative response culture, which is when a negative response to coming into the workplace sets off this domino effect of bad feelings toward the employer, that's what's really keeping a lot of companies from forcing folks back into the office full time. On the other hand, you know the erosion of workplace culture altogether by by working completely remotely is a real problem. and we all experienced that during these last few years. So, A lot of employers are are renovating their spaces to make them more comfortable and more inviting places to work.
0: Look, it hit us. We realized last summer that that it wasn't working, that we were not getting the benefit of veterans working with newer folks and and the discussions that you need in a newsroom to to further refine a story idea weren't happening. You can't Mm -hmm. do them on Zoom. So we went back three days a week and almost overnight you saw a change in the way people were approaching their jobs. It's been all positive. I, I don't think there's a negative to it. What we're wondering now is, is next summer, because people want to be able to do all their summer activities and limited months when you can go outside, do we cut back? Do we go to two days a week? What are we going to do? But I, mean, I don't think uh, you or, or Laura would disagree that this hasn't been a positive.
2: I, I would not disagree. And I, I I feel, though, also that having those two days a week where people can work from home it People feel appreciative of that flexibility, and and I agree. Summertime is one. Of, I for one, during the pandemic, would always sit outside and work in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And I felt like for mental health, you just can't beat some beat you know the work from home arrangement when the weather's nice.
3: I, yeah, and I don't, what I, I think. Go ahead. I was I was going to agree with Layla, I, I, and I love just taking a break to get the fresh air and and take a walk with the dog mm-hmm. or whatever. I. I do think what's missing from this discussion, I want to put a plug in for something I want to launch this year is a discussion about childcare, because I think, you know, the pandemic rearranged all of our work lives turned Turn childcare upside down. And a lot of people have been juggling. And I think that is a hamper to going into the office if you have little kids. Obviously, you cannot work and raise a child at the same time from home. I'm, I'm not saying that, but it, it is more flexible to work from home. And so I've, I see this as a key moment that we could be having this discussion in our communities about the best way to take care of our families.
0: Nicely played, Laura, getting that (laughs) subject in. It is a project that you're looking to coordinate this year. Way to go. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We often wonder on this podcast about how fast we can transition to electric vehicles because of all the challenges involved in charging the batteries. We received a piece of the answer in a company announcement Monday. Laura, what is it?
3: Well, one truck stop sees money in the future of electric vehicles. Travel Centers of America is teaming up with Electrify America to install more than 1,000 charging stalls for electric vehicles at more than 200 locations. They're aiming to put them about 50 miles apart along major U.S. highways, and they're supposed to serve almost all brands of electric vehicles. And here's the Chris Critton question, right? How long is it going to take me to charge my electric vehicle? (laughs) Uh, So I I looked this up. The fastest speed, direct current, fast charging equipment, um, that can get up to 80% in 20 minutes to an hour. Obviously, that is still longer than it takes you to fill a gas tank, which I think is what the Travel Centers of America is banking on, right? Because they have restaurants. They have a convenience store. uh, They have showers if you're a trucker. Maybe they're going to put in playgrounds for families. I don't know, but they see a future here
0: look we've got to get there the the burning of the fuels is bad for the world we know really, that really
3: natural gas is bad i thought it was super green
0: <laughs> but and and this is a step in the right direction and as as charging efficiency gets better i'm sure companies like this will replace their chargers so that people can move along more quickly but this this will place them all over the country Which is needed for more and more people to buy these things.
3: Yeah, and we're not just talking about oh, far in the future. They're starting this year to put them in, and I, you know, you see more and more of these pop up in different places, and you think maybe this is viable. I still think right now it'd be great as a second car, a drive around town kind of car. But hey, this is the future, and and it's I'm glad that a company thinks that there there is a market for it.
0: I did read a story over the holiday break about an unexpected issue with electric vehicles. The batteries make them much, much heavier mm-hmm. than gasoline engine cars, and so in an accident, they're they're more of a threat because they have so much more weight going into it. And,
3: and then, do they wear our roads more? Are we going to have to think about that with that gas tax uh, survey that ODOT is doing?
0: Right, that's a good point. The more weight does it does it get us worn down faster? It's today in Ohio, Ohio. Are Cavs and Guardians fans in danger of losing access to games on television because of financial trouble with the network that offers them. Lisa, the Cavs, they've had some road woes, but they're a good team this year. People like watching them. What's up with this?
1: This is really not good news and I have like a Bally Sports, you know, subscription. You know, I watch all the games on TV. But uh Diamond Sports Group, which owns Bally Sports Ohio and Bally Sports Great Lakes and other regional sports networks, is poised to file for bankruptcy and they will likely miss a $140 million interest payment, which is due in a couple of weeks. They're about eight point six billion dollars in debt. They owe two billion to major league teams in in rights broadcast rights fees. Now the Cavs really won't be affected by this because their season their broadcast season on BSO ends in April. But the Guardians might get uh, they they might. This might not be good. They receive about 47 to $52 million a year from their regional sports network contract with Bally that runs through 2027. But right now, they're preparing their TV schedule for spring training as if it will be broadcast on BSO. The options for Diamond Sports Group, according to Bloomberg, is that they can give the local TV rights back to the teams, they can keep the contracts but not make any payments, which is the bad one. And then teams could be offered equity in the company after restructuring in lieu of these payments. But Major League Baseball says they're, they may try to take back the local broadcast rights. They just hired a brand new position, a new vice president of local media to deal with this issue.
0: One of the biggest complaints, the most numerous complaints we received about the Guardians last year was their inaccessibility on television. Laura talked about this. You couldn't watch the games unless you bought this. And there were many people that are questioning the Guardians philosophy here, because if you don't make the games watchable, how do you build younger fans? So I guess in some ways, if they got the rights back and they went in another direction, maybe this would be a good thing.
3: I think so. I, I haven't would watched a Cavs so. game or Guardians game in years on TV.
1: And see because I have the package, I have the games on all the time when the when the Guardians are on the TV is on, but that's, you know, but I've paid for that, of course. But, you know, I You're right, though, Chris, I think that and maybe Major League Baseball needs to step in and take, you know, they seem like they're thinking about that. So, yeah, because this is a, you know, Diamond Sports Group is a subsidiary of Sinclair Broadcasting, which has been buying up, you know, news and sports networks all over the country.
0: Yeah, it's it could affect a lot of fans, so we'll have to keep focused on it until it resolves. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Is Cleveland falling way behind its goals for abating lead in city residences? Layla, I actually see optimism in this story, even though it's kind of a bad news story. What are the numbers?
2: I'm dying to hear your optimistic take on this. So <laughs> but the, so the city of Cleveland had set a series of rolling deadlines for rental property owners to register their units as being lead compliant. And City Hall reporter Courtney Astolfi tells us that according to the most recent data that's available – only 20% of those properties have been certified. The other 80% out of compliance. And March 31st is the drop-dead deadline here. Compliance is it seems to be significantly higher among rental units in large commercial housing complex with 11 or more units. Also, rental units in areas of the city that were given the earliest deadlines back in 2021 seem to have done pretty well because they you know, got the ball rolling sooner, gave themselves more time to complete the inspections and make the repairs and get their certifications approved by the city. Single-family homes and doubles have the lowest compliance rate, again, with the highest rates among those that had those earliest deadlines. So these compliance rates are just not good enough. Over the first three quarters of 2022, the city received about uh, 1,000 applications every three months, but the city says that to reach a seven-year goal of compliance by 2028 the volume of applications would need to reach about 2,500 for every three months.
0: Look, it's th- this is big. This is a big job. It's It's uh, been a challenge for many years. But there was a stat in the story that said we were 1% after the first year, 1% ahead of Rochester, which is viewed as the leader in this. They were way ahead of everybody. And the other part of the story that I thought was instructive is those with earlier deadlines were up in the 40% area. And the ones that were in the later deadlines, because these were rolling deadlines, were the ones that were behind. So it does seem like the deadlines are doing it. You can argue it's not fast enough for every kid that's poisoned by lead. It's a pretty much a disaster. But this was always going to be a big job. But what they did seems to be moving the needle after decades of not moving the
2: needle I was trying to think about the significance of this deadline issue because the ones with the the, the more you know the more recent deadlines nothing prevented them from starting this process sooner right
0: I mean but they didn't have a deadline. <laughs> I mean, I look, the deadline appears to work. If all the people with early deadline, not all, only 40 percent, there's still a long way to go. And look, the, the, I, the, the city used, to, the story says, the carrot approach in the beginning. Now it's going to very slowly start using the stick. They've started to file charges. They're starting to see things go through the courts. This needs to be the partnership between the apartment owners and the homeowners And the city, and they they seem like they're trying to get the right balance. Ultimately, you want to abate as much lead as possible. What's the best way of going about that? Right,
2: right. And you're right that they have tried to incentivize compliance by offering grants to property owners to help them make their properties lead safe. And if that doesn't work, they're going to start getting tough on them. They have a prosecutor who's now dedicated to prosecuting lead law cases. They've already started filing citations. I mean, the problem is property owners can just pay a $500 fine and make the citation go away, and that doesn't fix the lead problem or prevent kids from getting poisoned. So the city will likely have to get even tougher and start charging them with misdemeanors to make it hurt more.
0: But that's okay. You raise you raise the pressure bit by bit. I think they came up with a methodical approach that is showing signs of working. I, the, the next step is let's, let's see if we're seeing a change in the number of kids that are being poisoned by lead because at least some of these buildings are safe now. Fascinating story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. So it really is possible for an Ohio Supreme Court justice with a clear conflict of interest to recuse himself from a case. Laura, which justice did so, not Pat DeWine, and in which major case?
3: We're talking about Joe Dieters. Uh, He was recently appointed to the court by Governor Mike DeWine, who, as we know, has a son also on the court, Pat DeWine, who did not recuse himself in the gerrymandering case. But this is a huge case as well. This is the heartbeat bill case filed in Hamilton County Court of Common Pleas in September. At the time, he was the Hamilton County prosecutor. And Jesse Hill, an attorney for the providers, wrote to the court clerk on January 11th asking Dieters to recuse himself. And then he announced that he was going to do that Last Friday, So the court will appoint another judge to hear this case in place of Dieters if the court decides to take the appeal. So you still have seven judges. I'm assuming the replacement will also be Republican. But they're looking at this case. Basically, right now you can still get an abortion up to 20 weeks. Well, you can 22. get an abortion. Okay. In Ohio. And the heartbeat bill would limit it to about six weeks. So that right now is a stay on that heartbeat bill law while they figure out if it's completely legal. So there's kind of two cases. Well, it's one case, but they're deciding if they should keep the stay. And then the larger case will be decided maybe later this year.
0: Well, a salute to Dieters for doing the right thing and a suggestion that he have a conversation with his colleague, Pat DeWine. (laughs) It's today in Ohio. Ohioans did a staggering number of hours as volunteers during the pandemic, and reporter Zachary Smith crunched all the numbers to figure out what the totals are. Lisa, what do those numbers tell us?
1: This is this is awesome news um, ameriCorps and a uh, census bureau research you know crunched the numbers about volunteerism during the pandemic from september 2020 to september of 2021 2.2 million dollar 2.2 million dollars $2.2 million, 2.2 million ohioans volunteered formally giving 166 million hours of their time and that's worth about 4.5 billion dollars so they looked at both both formal volunteering which is via a uh, an organization like a food bank, a church, you know, if you're tutoring, you're doing COVID testing. And then they looked at informal volunteering. And this is like helping out around your community and in your family, house sitting, child care, running errands for your neighbors, that kind of thing. In informal volunteering, almost 55% of Ohioans lent a hand in their community. 41.7 donated $25 or more to charity. And when they crunched it, you know, as far as, you know, demographics Formal volunteers, it was more women and actually more Gen X, which is people aged 41 to 56. And then the 16-17 age group volunteered the most. And in informal volunteering, the men tended to volunteer slightly more, but not a lot. And the people that helped out informally mostly were boomers, veterans, and parents.
0: Yeah, it's one of those feel-good stories, right? You, You calculate all the nice things people did during the height of the pandemic, how can anybody not walk away with a smile?
1: Yeah, and, and, and it's good news. Uh, hopefully, you know, some people have continued their volunteerism after the worst of the pandemic is over. We might have to look at that as well.
0: All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Heights has an outsized piece of the Super Bowl story because of a first ever happening when the Philadelphia Eagles face the Kansas City Chiefs in a couple of weeks. Layla, this is very cool. What is it?
2: So for the first time in Super Bowl history, two brothers will be facing one another as players on opposing teams. Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey and Philadelphia Eagles center Jason Kelsey. As you said, they're from Cleveland Heights. Each has won a Super Bowl with their respective teams before. Jason's Eagles won Super Bowl 52 in 2018, and Travis won with the Chiefs Super Bowl 54 two years later. I guess Jason apparently joked on Twitter that he was giving up his brief Chiefs fandom after Kansas City beat the Bengals to earn their Super Bowl spot. So <laughs> I guess it's on, but pretty exciting for the Kelsey family. Oh, it, it bears yeah, who- mentioning also that even though they're making history as the first brothers facing one another as players, the Harbaugh brothers, John and Jim Harbaugh, coached against each other back in Super Bowl 47 when the Ravens beat Jim's 49ers 34 to 31.
0: Yeah, the Mannings never even went against each other, Peyton and Eli. Huh. The, 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 these, they, they grew up. about five blocks from my house. And Travis was in school with my daughter. They graduated the same year, same class. Yeah. That's cool. Um, So so in Cleveland Heights, everybody knows them. And this is just, this is a big national story everywhere you look because it's never happened before. Um, So it's just kind of exciting. I I think the Eagles are probably going to destroy Kansas City because they look so good. I should point out, I'm from the Philadelphia area. And when the Phillies finally ended their long drought of championships, they beat Kansas City. So I think Philadelphia kind of owns Kansas City. Go, Travis. Cool story. We'll be well, doing. I will w-
1: say. I just wanted to say. I've say, You know. I follow a couple of local bars and restaurants on Facebook, and a lot of them have Kelsey football pools where you can buy a square in a Kelsey football pool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's just. look, we don't. We're. I don't think we're ever going to have a day where our local football team goes to the Super Bowl, but we can have local guys go to the Super Bowl, <laughs> and we have to accept that as our lot. Very cool story. I'm, a, I'm on team Kelsey. <laughs> you're listening to today in ohio that's it for the tuesday podcast thanks layla thanks laura thanks lisa thanks everybody who listens we'll be back on wednesday